getting published, being a young writer in the 2020s, and how a debut novel can change your life with author Diana Reed. We're Jasmine and Maggie, and you're listening to Culture Club Chats. This is an interview with a person we find interesting and that we think you will too. We acknowledge that the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Gadigal people are the traditional custodians of the land which we live, work and record this podcast episode. We would like to pay our respects to Elders past and present. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Today's guest is a rising voice in the Australian literary landscape and has been compared to voice of a generation writer Sally Rooney. Diana Reid is the author of Love and Virtue, her 2021 debut novel that tapped into the cultural zeitgeist of feminism, rape culture, privilege and prestige. Love and Virtue saw Diana win the ABIA Book of the Year Award and the Sydney Morning Herald's Best Young Novelist Award. Now she's back with Seeing Other People, a summer novel that follows a love triangle and the relationship of sisters who are more alike than they may think. Thank you, Diana, for being on Culture Club Pod today. We are so excited to have you on. Thanks for having me. We want to know, so we love your books and we love your writing, but we are curious, what do you do when you're away from your writing and your work in a roundabout way? I guess I'm asking, what are your hobbies? Okay. Um, Yeah, I know there are some writers who are like, I'm always working. I can't stop writing, but that's not me. I really, I can stop for quite a long periods of time. Um, so I suppose my hobbies are, uh, well, if you've read my books, you won't be surprised to know I really like swimming. So I swim all year round. I've got a wetsuit um, and I've got a little group of friends, got a little group chat that's very innovatively called fish and we go swimming <laughs> at least once a week in the ocean. Yeah. Um, and I guess I also like cooking and I really like movies like I'm a bit old-fashioned I like going to the cinema and getting a chock top a woman after our own heart <laughs> sounds exactly like us and the swimmer as well <laughs> oh I'm not the swimmer but I'll I'll have a chock top yeah yeah <laughs> and you're based in Sydney aren't you yeah seeing other people has just been released congratulations must be Thanks. so great to finally see it out in the world yeah it's exciting and for those who haven't yet read it can you please give us a brief synopsis So Seeing Other People is a story of two very different sisters over the course of one summer in Sydney and it's about their complicated, sometimes overlapping love lives and the summer that stretches their relationship almost to breaking point. I love that. Um, We both have sisters. I've got two. Jazz has one. Um, India, her sister, actually edits this podcast. So hello, India. Um, So we want to know where did this idea of exploring the relationships between sisters come from? Yeah, so I actually don't have a sister. um, But I suppose I think I, I always like writing about female friendship. I think they're always interesting to me, the way women kind of um, define each other or define themselves in relation to the people that mm-hmm. they grow up around. And I think in Love and Virtue, I'd explored that dynamic in quite a toxic way. Like the there were these two women who were very influential in each other's lives, but it was a dynamic of competition and of always trying to be better than the other one. So I think I wanted to kind of explore a more wholesome side of that dynamic in this book. I, like I felt like I wasn't quite done with it. But I wanted to explore two women who 
do define themselves by reference to the other one, sometimes in contrast to the other one, but it's also very supportive and there's a lot of love there. Um, so yeah, I, I imagined what it would be like to have a sister and I wrote that and yeah, what was the question? <laughs> no, have you I answered, answered it? it perfectly. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm so surprised that you don't have a sister because like, yeah, it sums it up so well, like thinking of the scene where um, the elder sister goes to like kind of save the younger one at mm-hmm. a party and like just that immediate like I'm going to go get her, like just take the housemate's car and like that is such a sisterly relationship, like even if you're fighting. So, yeah, I've really resonated with the relationship there. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad. It sounds like you're a good sister. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just putting yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I think I, I think as a novelist as well, like any kind of family relationship is always interesting because they're obviously inherently high stakes because as you say, like, it doesn't matter if you're fighting or how you feel about them on that given day, they, they're still the most, one of the most important people in the world to you. And that kind of doesn't go away. So I think when you're writing a friendship, the worst case scenario is like, oh, well, you just stop being friends and that might be Mm -hmm. sad, but like, you'll have other friends. Whereas with sisters, like you, you're never going to get another one. So Mm. you can't, those relationships are so irreplaceable. So I think it makes any conflict much higher stakes. I would love to know what went into the research of um, looking into the relationships between sisters. So I just read a lot of novels with sisters in them. Um, And I tried to focus on novels where there were pairs of sisters because in in this book, there's only two of them and they um, have had not a super traumatic, but I guess a bit of um, a disrupted home life. So they've grown up in a very codependent way. Um, So I read a bunch of books that had sister pairs. So I read uh, Sense and Sensibility, uh, which is the sort of paradigm, two very different sisters novel by Jane Austen. And then I also read Howard's End, which has almost the identical pair of sisters to the one in Sense of Sensibility and the one in my book. It's like mm-hmm. the older one is more rational and reasonable and then the younger one is a bit more emotional and charming. I was actually thinking uh, when I was reading it about Jane Austen and like the female relationship. So, yeah, interesting that you say that reference. Yeah, so I didn't read Pride and Prejudice because she's got four sisters and yeah. too many. I was like, I just want one. Yeah. And also as well as the sisterly relationships, you kind of briefly reference lockdowns and covid um, I've seen online on Twitter and stuff, people like writers all across the world, um, screenwriters, et cetera, saying like, I'm not even, I don't even want to touch COVID. Like no one cares about it. We just want to avoid it. Um, why did you decide to include this in the book when so many other writers have avoided it? Yeah, well, I sort of included it in a cop-out way because I set the book just after COVID. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I do agree with those other writers on the internet. I think that lockdowns, I just have no interest in writing about them because they were so boring and also we all lived through them and everyone's experience of them was very particular. So I just think people don't need to hear from me about my musings on them. You know, like people have thought about them enough. Um, But I also, but then that puts you in a difficult position because you can either write in the past just before COVID, which is I think what a lot of writers have chosen to do. I feel like a lot of contemporary fiction books now set in 2019 um, or you can imagine a world after so I chose to do the latter and that was also because I wanted to write about characters who were at a point in their life where they were kind of reassessing who they wanted to be 
they're they're out of you they've been out of uni for a couple of years and I think adulthood has proved harder than they expected so they're kind of reassessing what it what it is they want from life and I thought that the post lockdown months were for a lot of people that kind of time of reassessment like I think a lot of people had picked up new hobbies in lockdown or um you know had relationships that changed and I think a lot of people kind of re-emerged and were in this phase of rethinking how what they wanted from their life it was like a rebirth so yeah that's why um that's why I said it after lockdown I love that I mean this is so broad but morality and philosophy are big themes in your work um you also studied philosophy at uni what's your relationship uh like with both of those I guess themes and how did you actually become interested in it yeah, I so my relationship with them is that I they're very integral to the way I write. So I think both of my books so far have started with a moral question. So with Love and Virtue, I had this idea about looking at consent, not just in terms of consent to um, sex and bodily autonomy, but also consent to tell your own story. And then with and then that also had the idea of the bigger question of are you a good person or do you just look like one? And then with this book, I wanted to look at where we draw the line between being self-fulfilled and pursuing your own goals and desires and just being selfish. So, yeah, so I think those big confusing moral questions are just very interesting to me. And I think that novels are a really good place to explore them because you can go into a lot of complexity and you can kind of really tease out the gray areas. And then while I'm writing, I also, yes, I sound like such a nerd. I <laughs> read lots of, I, I read a lot of philosophy essays and stuff um, to get other people to tell me what they think about these moral questions. And so when I was writing, seeing other people, I read two essays in particular that like really informed the plot. So yeah, and and how I got into this, yeah, why am I like this? I don't know. <laughs> um, I yeah, I'm not sure. I I studied philosophy at university, and I think it was because I really liked English literature, like at school, and I was such a big reader. But then I didn't want to do English at uni because you had to read so much. Um, you had to read like I don't know a novel a week or something stupid and I was like oh, I don't have the time I'm just going to do philosophy and then I can read an essay a week and then I loved it so yeah there you go that's why we do arts degrees <laughs> <laughs> and your debut novel Love and Virtue is uh, obviously set on an Australian uni campus um so you studied law right there? yeah I did law and philosophy at Sydney yeah. uni. and what made you pick that up and then quit law? yeah <laughs> good question I picked it up because I just didn't know what else to do. Um, and I, I think a lot of people who are like interested in humanities and a bit type A do law as a kind of safe option because it's more vocational than just doing an arts degree. So that was me. Yeah, to this day, I can't really give you a better reason. Mm-hmm. I, I just, yeah, that's why I did it. And I should say as well, there was no external pressure. I made that decision all by myself. <laughs> and then I quit. So I'd actually, I finished the law degree and I actually had a grad job at a corporate law firm. And then I took a year off in 2020, the year after I graduated, which was basically just like a gap year. And that was, I think, just because I knew that the law wasn't for me. And I was 
really just procrastinating from <laughs> having to do the job. And then that ended up being the year that I wrote Love and Virtue. And now that's my job and that's my life. Mm. So, yeah, it wasn't through any kind of um, – it was really just luck that that happened. And I would probably be a very bad lawyer now if it weren't for <laughs> Love and Virtue. I want to take you back kind of to that time back in 2020 you were 24 years old and yeah you were starting to write Love and Virtue what was that experience like? Yeah it's so funny because it totally changed my life but now I can't really remember it that clearly (laughs) um so so in that so I'd taken that gap year and what I had planned to do was do some a bunch of independent theatre stuff so I'd been very involved in theatre at uni and then I was going to do um, an, a few independent shows just at small theatres in Sydney as a like director slash producer. And then I was going to do a show at the Edinburgh Fringe. And then COVID happened, so all of that got cancelled. And then I was like at home living with my parents and I just had nothing to do. So I wrote Love and Virtue. And it was such a fun writing experience because I genuinely didn't expect it to go anywhere and I... I really, I was literally just doing it to pass the time. Like I was like, I don't have a job at the moment. I've got nothing else to do. I might as well just fill my days with this word document. Um, But yeah, it's really cool that I got to have that experience because in hindsight, I actually look back on that. And I think that's probably the ideal way to create. Like, Mm. I think that in that kind of totally free, no one's ever going to look at this. I'm not worried about what anyone's thinking I think that environment is probably when you're going to have your freest or your most authentic self-expression. Um, as a follow-up to that then, you were talking about how you had like no pressure writing your first book. What about your second book after, you know, well-deservingly, it's been so hyped, mm. um, it's been really loved around Australia. What was that experience like? Well, I didn't have quite so much pressure because I, um, so my publisher, when they bought Love and Virtue, they bought a second book. And they encouraged me to start writing a second one immediately to avoid this problem because they were like, um, if you've already got a draft of it done by the time your first one comes out, then the whatever the reaction is to the first one, it can't affect it. So that's what I did. So I, by the time Love and Virtue came out, I'd done a not very good, like it wasn't publishable or anything, but I had a draft of seeing other people. So it was kind of too late to go back. Um, but it, what, having said that though, it was still different because I, I knew that even if it never made it to print, my publisher would at least read it. You know, it's like it's that difference of knowing that someone in the world will read it versus maybe this will just live on my desktop forever. Um, and it was very good that I'd had that lockdown experience because I knew I just had to trick myself into thinking that no one would ever read it. So, mm. yeah, it's like this weird thing. You just have to lie to yourself. So every day I'd get to the computer and I'd open the Word document and I'd just say to myself, whatever I write today, I can always delete it or I can always put it in the bin. No one has to see it. And I think that's how I'll proceed probably for the rest of my career. Yeah, you just have to lie. (laughs) That's such a good way to put it. And I was wondering how um, your second novel came out so quickly after the first, but that makes so much more sense now. (laughs) Yeah, it's because, um, yeah, there's always about nine months between buying a Mm. book and it being published. So it's quite a, yeah, it's like a baby. (laughs) It takes a while. Yeah, and um. I think a lot of people would like to know how to go about writing a book and like so you were, it's 2020 and you're at your parents writing this book. Did you then like shop it around publishers? Do you just email them? Like how did that process happen to you getting a publisher? 
Yeah, so my pro, I should say in terms of how to write a book, I literally Googled how long is a book at the start. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God, I love the transparency. Yeah, and then it was very a very fruitful Google search. I found this, like, Reddit thread that just listed all the different genres and, like, famous books and exactly how long they were. And I was like, oh, thank you. <laughs> I'll, I'll do that then. Um, I – and then, okay, so in terms of getting published, I – so I showed it to two friends from uni, um, one of whom I'd written sort of scripts with before who um, is quite harsh – not harsh, but – is a very considered reader and I was like okay he'll be honest and he'll tell me if it's a piece of shit um and then I gave it to another friend who's always been very supportive and so then I was like oh I'll have some positive feedback and some negative feedback to work with um and then the friend who's always been very positive just by pure coincidence had worked for a woman who like 10 years ago had written a memoir and so he was like you should send it to her because she knows about publishing in Australia because she's been published before so he gave me her number and I just cold called her and then she read the first three chapters and then she encouraged me to talk to agents um and then I literally just cold called agents so I just rang them up on the phone and was like I probably sound like a freak but I've written this manuscript this is what it's about do you want to read it um and then from that I got an agent and then the agent submitted it to publishers but yeah, I appreciate that that story is probably quite frustrating for other people because <laughs> I suppose the lesson in that, if there is any, is that obviously the work has to be good, mm-hmm. but that's just not enough. There's so many other pieces of luck that have to fall into place. Like I was lucky that not a lot of people were writing in COVID. So when I called the agent, they they were happened to be looking for stuff at that time. And I was also lucky that like normal people, the TV show had just done really well. So they heard like, uni campus novel young people and they were like yep we know that sells we'll have a read of it so I think that can be really frustrating but also it can be comforting because it means that if you write something and you send it somewhere and it gets rejected it's not necessarily a reflection on your work it might be that all of those other factors just haven't haven't fallen into place you know so and I yeah I did have so many artistic endeavors that never worked prior to that so yeah I think um it's yeah it's doing the work but then it's also just like waiting for circumstances to conspire in your favor speaking of normal people you have previously mentioned in another interview that you um, find it flattering um, when people do compare your work to Sally Rooney can you talk to us about that because some people find lumping women into like categories and comparisons can be a bit redundant totally yeah and I I I completely accept that and I see how it probably objectively is a bit, um, yeah, redundant or also I suppose reductive to just compare all women writers as if they occupy their own cultural space and, you know, you have the women over here and then the men over there. Um, But I think just because I personally love Sally Rooney's work and I admire her so much, I'm never going to tell anybody to stop making that comparison. (laughs) Um, Having said that though, I, I probably think it is not, technically that correct I think that Sally Rooney has a much more innovative style I think my writing style is much more old-fashioned so to be honest it probably is reductive and it probably has more to do with the demographic similarities between me and her like we're both white young university educated women but I'll I'll just take it you know (laughs) yeah I'll take it as well such a compliment we love Sally Rooney on this pod 
Um, sorry, I keep clamoring to the mic because I have so many questions that just keep popping into my mind. But That's okay. <laughs> I want to know what your relationship is with social media, especially like personally, but then also, you know, book talk is so big and people have lots of loud opinions on the web. Yeah, so I don't have TikTok or Twitter. I only use Instagram. And my relationship with it is, I would say, as healthy as possible for someone who's grown up online. So, Mm. like, I'm definitely addicted to my phone and I definitely have to, like, when I'm in a big writing spell, like when I'm drafting, I have to leave my phone in a different room and turn the internet off on my computer. Like, I have no organic self-control. I have to impose it. Um, And then in terms of an author, I'm... Uh, an author of being an author I'm quite deliberate about I always want my books to be the product not me Diana to be the product so I just don't put that much out there on social media um and I'm not really interested in influencing anybody not that I think I could but I I just think that you have to have uh, just for me personally that's the kind of boundary I've established in my mind I'm selling the book and if people like the book and they interact with the book that's awesome but I don't want them to rope me and my personality in with that brand, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's such a good way to put it, like having the boundaries up. And I do think that does come across because when Mags and I were talking, we're like, oh, I wonder if she's shy. Like you don't, we don't really know much about like you as a person. Your books just kind of speak for themselves, which I think is such like a a great thing to have these days when everyone does have the personal brand etc totally and I like I should say that's not a dig at people who have personal brands Mm. like I think that they I have a lot of respect for people who can sustain that but I just think for me my priority is to write good books and I think if I was also trying to maintain a robust or effective personal brand that would take time away from the books and Mm. so I yeah I'd just rather spend the time writing I love that you thought I was shy. That makes me like mysterious. (laughs) Yeah, mysterious. (laughs) I think we equate like shyness or anything a bit extroverted nowadays as like mysterious and cool because I don't know. Me and like we we have a podcast where we yap on every week on a microphone. Like we are not mysterious. (laughs) No, it's funny because I'm not. I'm actually not shy at all, and I like I really had to consciously when I found out the book was being published, I made a very conscious decision around social media and stuff because I'm, yeah, I'm normally a huge over-discloser. And yeah, I was just like, okay, you got to rein it in. <laughs> I have actually a follow-up question about this social media decision that you've made because I'm wondering, this is, oh my God, I was going to say it's projecting, but it's not, I'm no way similar to JK Rowling or whatever, but like, mm. is there a part of you that has seen kind of the backlash and fallout of major um, figures and authors that has maybe pulled you back from wanting to participate in the space or is that kind of not really an issue? Um, I don't think it's an issue at this stage in my career. I, I sort of, jo- I always joke that if you ever got cancelled, that would be, that would show that you were doing really well because you have to like <laughs> be famous enough to be cancelled. <laughs> um, but I am, I, I suppose the internet is a, not the friendly place that it used to be in some ways like I think that well maybe no that's probably not a good way of putting it I think that we're more alert now to how 
the internet really is forever and like things that you put up 10 years ago can be discovered and um, kind of raked over and analysed. And, yeah, so I suppose I do have a kind of wariness about how um, stuff I put on the internet might be interpreted. But I also think I'm sensitive to the fact that seeing the trajectory of people like J.K. Rowling does make you uh, it's made me more cognizant of like if I have an opinion on something I'm I always ask myself like is am I the right person to have an opinion on this Mm. and then also because I have written opinion pieces for the Sydney Morning Herald and when I'm writing them I'm always very conscious of I guess you would call it cancel culture but I actually think to be honest that made me a better writer because every sentence that I wrote I would ask myself if that sentence got pulled out on its own and put on Twitter, would there be a way to perceive it in a really negative Mm. light? Mm. And it just made it a better sentence. Do you know what I mean? Because then asking that question would make me express myself more clearly and make sure that nobody could misinterpret it. So I think that it does make you warier, but I'm not sure that the wariness is necessarily a bad thing. I think it just means people have to say what they mean and have to think about whether they should speak at all, you know? Yeah. And words... Words have meaning, obviously. Like I saw a great thing on um, Twitter yesterday about Graham Norton talking about cancel culture, if you haven't seen it, and he just says, like, it's not cancel culture, it's just accountability. Like people are learning that, yeah, people are learning that they have to be accountable for their words, which I think is maybe what you're saying about, like, pouring over every sentence and, like, yeah. I don't know what I'm trying to say, but like words have meaning basically. No, for sure. And it's, uh, and I do think that that's an element of it. I I think I personally have a problem with people being held accountable for things that they did like decades ago. Mm. Um, It obviously depends on the scale of what they did. But I think when people's like very old tweets and stuff get pulled out, I'm a bit like, oh, well, are they the same person now that they were then? And, you know, maybe what was funny then is, for legitimate reasons not funny now but at the Mm. time it meant something different so I think that yeah that's where my problem with it is because I think that it's very hard to interpret things retrospectively because we're not looking at it with the lens that people would have looked at it at the time but in terms of comments that are made now yeah I just think that you should always give a lot of thought to how anyone might receive those comments and if there's a possibility that a large portion of the population might be offended, then express yourself better, you know? Mm, Yeah. (laughs) I kind of want to go back in time a bit to, I'm just curious to know what it was like after Love and Virtue and the way that blew up in like Australian literature when you just wrote it kind of like, because you had, obviously had a story to tell, but you said you had like spare time in lockdown. What was that whole experience like going from like, just out of uni in lockdown to then being like, you know, getting told that you're one of the best young authors in Australia? Um, Yeah, it was awesome. (laughs) It was obviously the best time of my whole life. Um, Yeah, so it's funny The I would say the best time was actually before it came out, just when I sold it and I realised that I could work as a writer, which was not something that I'd ever ever thought was a real possibility and especially not as like a full-time job that was just unreal. Like I can only talk about it in hyperbole. It was dream come true. Like I cried a lot. (laughs) I was just, yeah, I was just so happy all the time. It was like obnoxious. Um, and I, and yeah, I think it was 
nice as well because I'd sort of go, gone quite far in a different career, which I was not super passionate about. So I think I had and still have a real appreciation of how lucky I am to wake up every day and do something that I would do anyway, you know, like that I just love and I want to do. Um, and then in terms of it coming out, it, it came out in lockdown. So that was probably healthy because I felt quite removed from the response to it. Like it was all happening literally through a screen. And um, yeah, I mean, obviously it's so lovely to get this response to it and it's so kind and I'm very grateful. But I also think there's an element of it that doesn't really feel real. Like I think for me, I, I always think that I'm sort of my harshest critic and even though I'm very grateful when readers say they respond to the work or when it gets awards and stuff, that you know, and that's an amazing opportunity and it helps with sales, it doesn't actually change my opinion of the quality of the work, if that makes sense. Like I'm, I sort of am very grateful for those things happening as a career opportunity. But at the end of the day, if like I think that there's a certain bit of the book that's weak, there's no amount of external validation Mm. that will change that opinion. So Diana, you've had a lot of experience in theatre and we even previously mentioned Normal People as a TV show. Would your books being um, adapted into something on stage or TV on screen um, actually be appealing to you? Yeah, I would love that. So yeah, if anyone's listening to this podcast with deep pockets, (laughs) slide into my DMs. Yeah, I I would love that. I think it would be interesting though. I think that novels will probably always be my first port of call and I think that's because it's very hard once you've experienced the level of control of writing a novel. I think it's very hard to give that up. Like when you're writing a book, the characters look how you want them to look and they stand where you want them to stand and they just and if you want to set it somewhere, you can, you know, like if you like in Love and Virtue, they were you know some of the characters had like the most expensive waterfront mansion and you just write that and you're like yeah it's marble everywhere whereas (laughs) I imagine if you're making it for a tv show there are some constraints on that um but the I guess the flip side of that is that I am as I was saying before I'm, I'm not actually a super introverted person and I do like working in teams so I can imagine working with people to bring something like that to into the world would be very creatively fulfilling Mm. I think seeing other people you can so easily picture as like a mini series or something for those who haven't read it it's set in yeah like you said a summer in Sydney and it's just so visual like the scenes of them at the beach together you can almost like feel the heat like on your skin it's so so beautiful so um yeah I hope that that comes to fruition for you <laughs> thanks yeah you couldn't film it now though it's always raining in Sydney. Uh, true true <laughs> yeah honestly when I was reading it I pictured um the, the one like the younger sister honestly I'm not going to name the person because it's a bit embarrassing but I pictured her as this model I've seen on like Instagram um <laughs> but I just love the idea of like having thousands of iterations of the characters that you have written in like every person's head and they just mm. all have different tweaks because of our lived experience and the way we read books all differ even if we're just digesting the same bit of text mm. um so yeah the, what I was about to say with my question before is that of course it's st- your books stand alone so well just as books 
themselves as a piece of text, but it would be very cool to see it on screen or on a play or a musical, imagine. (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure. Also, no shame about the Instagram thing. I like to quote research by Instagram. Like if I'm thinking about what they'll wear, I'll be like, who's trendy? Like go and like save a bunch of Instagrams. (laughs) Yes. Oh, that's also what I wanted to mention to you. Now we're just like totally fangirling. I loved the way as well that you use like trendy things and like Instagram, social media, um, phones in this book. I mean, it's probably because you are a young person as well, but like sometimes when authors do that, it's so cringe. And I've tried to write, you know, even in articles, you try to write about trends or like fashion or whatever. And you're just like, oh, I sound like a grandma trying to explain this, but you did that so well as well. So I just wanted to, it's not really a question. I just wanted to (laughs) say that I think you did a good job of like explaining modern trends. Thank you. Yeah. I know what you mean. It is hard, Mm. isn't it? Because you don't want to over explain it because then it kind of sets you Mm. at a distance from Mm. the trend. And I think that's when you sound like a grandma, but you also can't just like list brands that won't mean something to anyone so Mm. yeah I do think about that a lot I also do have to it's not just because I'm a young person I do have to do research like as I said I'm not on TikTok so I had to like I messaged a group of friends for this book because I wanted the characters to send TikToks to each other and I had to message all my TikTok active friends and be like (laughs) hit me up like what are the kids watching (laughs) (laughs) yes no that's so great to hear we send so many TikToks to each other so we're all over that. Um, anyway, every single week on our podcast, we kind of um, give recommendations to our listeners about something that we've read, watched or listened to that we have loved recently. We were wondering, do you have any recommendations for us? What are you loving right now? Oh, okay. What am I loving? I've been pretty slack because I have been busy with the promo for seeing other people so I haven't been watching enough but my read is Marshmallow by Victoria Hannon I just finished that I recommended that sorry continue shame okay well you don't need (laughs) you're 10 steps ahead of me um yeah it's just a great it's just a great read it's um also her second book and she's an a Melbourne writer and it's this it's a book about a very tragic event but it's told in a weirdly funny and heartwarming way that doesn't undermine the tragedy so would recommend that um and then watch what have I oh I haven't really watched much tv lately but for anyone who's not on this train yet I just think succession is the best piece of writing in any medium this century I'm just obsessed with it so get around that (laughs) have you watched succession Maggie I have not but I know I'm very late to this um bandwagon so I must give it a yeah. Give it a watch it's on the list. Yes. Have you watched Heartbreak High yet, Diana? I watched the first episode. Yeah. I yeah. Very cool. I love seeing stuff set in Australia. Yeah. It's so refreshing. I think between seeing other people and Heartbreak High, like the era of like young kind of Gen Z, younger millennials, like sharing their experiences is coming, and it's so exciting. I think like Heartbreak High is just such a great representation. It's so nice to see. Australian stories being told just like your books as well so yeah I totally agree it's yeah that's a great call it's just Mm. so refreshing to see yeah like familiar scenes and hear Mm. those accents and yeah it's also obviously very well made show like it looks awesome yeah well 
thank you so much for your time. That was all the questions that we had for you today. Um, but if people want to know more and buy your book, of course, seeing other people, where can they get that info? Well, you if you want to know more about me, you can't. I'm <laughs> no. uh, yeah, good luck. No, um, they can follow me at, um, on Instagram at Diana Reed underscore. And then they should buy seeing other people from their local bookshop. Love that. Amazing. Or indie bookshops. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much for chatting with us today, Diana. We wish you all the best and we can't wait for another book, we hope, in the forthcoming future. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I'll, I'll get on to it. <laughs> yes, please. And thank you so much for having me today. It was a great chat.